Tandem Nomads, episode 176. I think it's so important in times like these for us to remember that the reason that we first started in the community that we belong to needs to be brought back to the forefront of our existence. And we need to gather together more than ever, link arms, and be willing to talk to each other about the hard stuff. Hello, Nomad Nation. Welcome to Tandem Nomads, the podcast show and entrepreneurship platform where you can find great inspiration and tips to grow a successful portable business and thrive in your global nomadic life. This is your host, Emel Deregi. I'm a business and marketing coach and the founder of Tandem Nomads. Nomad Nation, this episode is a very important episode for me. It is, um, I'm coming back to you today after um, an episode that I recorded a few weeks ago that was triggered with the murder of George Floyd And I have just taken the mic and just shared with you how I feel about this situation and why I think this concerns us all, no matter if we live in the United States or not. And I had promised to come back to you with more insights so that we can all get together to not only take a stand against racism, but also learn how to really align our businesses with the way we show up as a leader in our society. I truly believe that it is very important that as a company and as a business owner that we know what we stand for and that we understand that we cannot separate certain important values with what we do day to day when we communicate with our community and our audience. So today I want to bring to you an amazing guest. I'm so lucky to have her here to share with us her insights. She's a real expert on the topic of how to lead a community and take a stand for a topic that's really important to your heart, to your business, and hopefully as well to the work against racism. So Naomi, thank you so much for showing up and for taking the time to share your experience with us here. Thanks for having me, Amel. It's so good to be back on the podcast. And I'm excited to have this conversation, even though it um, might be a little messy and difficult, but I'm glad to have it. It is so true. Thank you for saying that. It is messy and difficult. I'm tiptoeing on this episode because it is a topic that's so important to my heart that I'm, as a lot of people, where to say or do the wrong things. Um, And this podcast show is all about building a business and sharing marketing tips and everything. Uh, But I do think that entrepreneurship more than that, it's about making an impact. And I hope Nomad Nation that you'll get some insights here to help you make an impact in this society as an entrepreneur. So um, Naomi, I will introduce you in a few words and then um, I'd love you to say more about your journey. Uh, So Nomad Nation, Naomi has been on the show two times already. And if I had to summarize in just one word, what Naomi stands for is community. Whatever she does, although she did so much along her career, is all around the community building and making change and impact, no matter which format it is. So I will uh, share in the show notes of this episode, the two episodes that I did with Naomi as the leader of an organization called I Am A Triangle. So I Am A Triangle is an online community with thousands of globally located members with one thing in common, they've lived around the world, away from their passport countries. So she has been creating this community and she shared with us how she did it as well how she transformed it and pivoted it. It's been amazing to watch this journey. But on top of it, Naomi does a lot of things. She will tell us about it. She's also 
um, the owner of Ethan Home, real estate and relocation company, a nationwide referral network, matching families on the move with real estate professionals who chase community and not commissions. I love this. <laughs> so after living in several locations in the United States, her family, three kids, now in college and high school, moved overseas to Delhi, India, where she learned to thrive in the midst of chaos. Following one year stint in Singapore, they are now back in the United States and she has trespassed her way from Florida to Virginia to Ohio and now back to her hometown, which is Omaha, Nebraska. So that's where she's talking to us today from. So Naomi is passionate about community building and empowering others to thrive, not just survive in places where they call home. So it's really hard to really summarize the amazing journey you've been on, Naomi. Could you tell us what's happening in your world right now? You know, it's so interesting to hear that um, being said with someone else's words or with <laughs> someone else's voice, um, because it just, it, it punctuates literally the journey around the world. Um, I am from Nebraska. I'm a Nebraska native. And so to be back home has been um, complicated. Um, it's been great and difficult all at the same time. One of the things I did know that when I moved back is that I wanted to continue my impact and um, almost in a, in a way that some of your listeners won't be able to resonate with because they're not in a place that allows them to maybe vote or um, have a specific kind of impact. But I just dove in and thought, you know, what is it that I can do with this one beautiful life that I've been given? Um, I just turned 44 years old and I feel like I'm on the second half <laughs> second half of my life and I better I better do something with it. So uh, I just left uh, a large housing nonprofit and I'm doing some contracting work um, with COVID response. So we're doing housing um, crisis response with rental and mortgage assistance during the summer months when a lot of our, our a lot of our community members are struggling. Um, and in um, big news, but not the biggest news, I've decided to run for elected office and We'll be working on um, a campaign for city council here in Omaha, Nebraska. So I'm very excited about that. And like you said, Amel, it, it goes back to community. Um, I, I believe that we're in a time that our elected officials and our business leaders um, need to be focusing on community uh, and, and not our bottom line and not our dollars. So, Wow. Actually, you're making me jump right into this topic of what <laughs> you just said about this is big news. I, you told me before, but I was so excited when you told me that you decided to run. And speaking of taking a stand, right, to fight for the cause that you believe in and fight for your community. And we were discussing this thing that I want to bring here, how sometimes it is challenging when being a global nomad and living on the move to actually feel like we can make an impact um, because we don't have our hands on the jurisdiction sorry, the, the legislative or executive powers of whatever we live or which country we feel like we belong to because we don't live there. So it feels very difficult as an expat and global nomad to be able to make a change. Um, I truly believe that starting a business and actually making a, biz a change through entrepreneurship is, is an amazing way to do it when we're a global nomad. But I'd love to hear what's your take for that. What would you want to share with those who want to make an impact and who want to take a stand for whatever cause they believe in and hopefully especially anti-racism yeah. um, when they can't, they can't make a real direct implication or change 
yeah. with the society. For example, I cannot go vote in the U.S. Yeah. So what would you say to that, to those who want to take a stand? You know, it's interesting. And I think that um, one of the things that we are agreeing on without having formally said it is that we'll say things that might not be the most popular things during this episode. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that for me, when I was living overseas, I used, I said exactly the same thing that you just said. Well, I can't, I mean, I could vote, I could vote absentee, but it was problematic and it was not seamless. Um, I couldn't do certain things. I couldn't give donations to certain folks. Um, and I definitely couldn't make phone calls for my favorite um, candidate. But I think that that can become almost a crutch to be able to just say, oh, well, geez, I can't do anything. So off I go in my, um, my life as normal. And I see that happening with U.S. residents here as I live in the U.S. also. You know, I gave $50 and I can't do anything else and I can't protest. So I, you know, so I think that there's um, an opportunity to really go beyond that step. So what, you know, looking at the things that might not be so obvious to us. Um, we talk a lot about the work that's to be done at our kitchen tables. Um, and we jump too quickly to the things that are visible and physical, like writing a check or making phone calls for someone or being on the streets. And then we're not willing to deal with the stuff at our kitchen table. So while I do not suggest that everyone go out and talk to their family members who are um, racist, because that can uh, lead to some expense of energy that might not be well suited, um, I do think you can talk to those um, kids in your life. I'm really, really passionate about talking to the kids in your life and whether you are um, a parent traditionally or non-traditionally, every single one of us has a child in our life. Um, and so that might be the first suggestion is brainstorm with the kids in your life and start having conversations with them. Not only because you can help to influence the way that they are growing up, but they'll have some things to teach you as well. Um. <laughs> oh my God, you're talking and I'm having goosebumps right now. <laughs> it's so important what you're saying here that it's basically not in the big gestures that we can sometimes make an impact. And it's not even outside our homes. Sometimes we have to start inside, inside of ourselves, first of all, and then inside of our homes and our families and our close circles, yeah. which I believe can be even more difficult sometimes to have those tough conversations at home. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think, and, and let me clarify a little bit. I, I think that there's a lot of um, noise on social media anyway of people telling us that one of the first steps is to talk to our family members, uh, primarily, you know, maybe an older generation or um, folks that live in a different um, region than you do that might have different ideologies. And I don't think that's bad. I just think we have better ways to spend our energy um, because getting in a, a, in a fight over how we view things, if someone's not going to change, do something else. <laughs> Focus on yeah, something. That's a good reminder. Yeah, I, I do have that conversation with my husband all the time with people around us that we're trying to have conversations with and then we realize um, we need to choose our battles and sometimes it's better to do that work with people who are open yeah. to actually questioning and um and yeah we're closer to that um you talked about kids i just want to mention that real quick i do i do have i did have a lot of conversations since uh this whole thing happened i just don't even know how to say it like uh, the only thing i can refer to is is the assassination because that was for me the trigger i've always been anti-racism but this has like 
just I just can't express it how much it has been impacting me because it made me realize if this is possible, um, how bad are all the other little things mm-hmm. behind the scenes that lead to this making it possible? Mm-hmm. So that's basically what made me trigger and then having the comment and then I realized I need to start talking to people. So I've been talking to a lot of people, including you, and I was so grateful. The big question for me was as an entrepreneur, what can I do? I have a responsibility. I have a platform. I have an audience and I feel responsible to take action. But Mm -hmm. honestly, I did not know how. I did not know what to do, what to say. Um, And that's when I reached out to you. And I was so grateful that you, you know, picked up all my messages and I hope I did not harass you during those (laughs) days where I needed your guidance. So what is it that you would like to start with for those who have a platform and those who um, yeah, who are ready to take action, where do we start? You know, that's such a good question. And I think that it is, it's hard to answer for, for me as one person to give the absolute answer for everyone else. I think the one thing that I would say that is so important is to, um, do the research to find someone who is well-versed in anti-racist, um, education, anti-racism education, um, and then promote the heck out of their work. Um, Mm. It's going to be different for everyone. Some of my dear friends um, like the work of, for example, Catrice Jackson. Other folks uh, feel like she's too much for them, which she is. She's a a doozy. Um, And so others like Monique Melton or others like Rachel Cargill. There's a whole list and I can provide you some more lists. That would be great. um, But I think it's important to, to pick one and dive into it yourself to do that internal, you know, quote, kitchen table work, um, and then share that out. I think that too often we think that we have to be the ones to bring the solution or the answer or the words, and there's other people. It's, you know, as entrepreneurs, um, we, we do try and do it all, but sometimes someone who can manage our MailChimp list it's a much better use of our time to have someone that's an expert do that work or someone to do. um, I can't think right now of other examples, but it's no different with this work. We need to, we need to prioritize the people who have the voices who have been doing this work for a long time. Um, And then the other thing I would say too is stick, stick with it consistently. So stay in your lane is something that I've always talked about, but this is really um, ideal to talk about it now because you don't have to stay in your lane, meaning don't, talk about anti-racism, but if you pick someone's work that you resonate with, it's, in my opinion, better to stay consistent on sharing that person's work instead of being all over the place. One of the things that we like to do when we don't know what to do is flail our arms and go, oh my gosh, this is all so much, and we spiral and we spin out of control, or we plug our ears and we go, la 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 la, I can't hear you. Um, And I, I see a lot of folks because we don't know what to do, we share everything and we mm. share all of the social media posts and we jump into all of the Facebook conversations when it's, I think it's easier on ourselves and our message and for our platforms if we just stay consistent with one. I love that. That was rambly, but. No, it makes so much sense. And you're so right. I think, like you said, it starts with doing first our own work in our own kitchen table, doing our own research. And then once we found the direction where we feel aligned, 
is to stick, to be consistent, just like in marketing, you need yep. to be consistent. Yep. And if, yeah, that's such a good tip. So I hope it's okay for you for ask you then after this episode to share the links yep. of some of Absolutely. the recommendations you have. Yep. And I'd, I'd love to, speaking about that, and I realized I did not follow up on one idea I had at the beginning. You see, it is a messy conversation, but that's the beauty <laughs> of it. Oh, you mentioned the kids and I, I had a very powerful conversation with a friend about how do we talk about this and I did spend a lot of time talking to parents you know uh, because I do believe if the kids are anti-racist not just not racist but if the kids are actually actively anti-racist at least we can build a better future in a way because I don't think that our generation is an anti-racist generation and including me I've never considered or done any anti-racist work and the biggest learning lesson for me since I've been diving into all these resources is that it's not possible to be not racist. We're either racist or anti-racist. Yeah. Being not racist, it basically means that we're not taking a stand against racism. Yeah. And Angela Davis, I think, I can't remember her exact quote, but Angela Davis is, is the one that... Um, spoke on that the the difference between not racist and anti-racist and her work is amazing and she still continues to this day to be amazing in that realm um to talk about the kids you know for for folks that are living outside of their passport country often your children or the children that are in your lives are in um schools that are very diverse and are filled with people from all different nations and all different skin tones and all different religious beliefs. So I think it's very easy. It was very, I I try always to bring it back to myself. It was very easy for me when I lived overseas to give myself a pass on having to do any kind of anti-racism work because we'll just look at look at my kids at school. They're surrounded by people that look differently from them and they're good friends and they learn from each other and they play together and I'm friends with their moms. And, and I was, it was very easy for me to just check that box and move on and not talk about it or think about it. Um, but the reality is, is there is racism present in the expat world. Um, and I think it presents differently maybe than it might in the U.S., um, I think it presents as classism. It presents as, uh, and I'm not sure what the ism would be, but um, wealth, you know, and and what it's like for a certain group of folks to not have the same privileges afforded to them in a country. Uh, the most prevalent for me was when I lived in Singapore and we watched folks uh, come across the uh, border from Malaysia um, to work. Um, and just the way that one race, one ethnicity treated another ethnicity uh, was horrifying. Um, I wrote a couple of blog posts about it um, and never quite was able to really wrap my brain around it. I didn't know what to do about it, um, but it was that was the place that it, it was really in my face, um, how much racism exists. Um, and you know, um, Miriam Adamafiore, I can never say her last yeah, name. Yeah, Adamafiore. <laughs> she wrote a beautiful article about racism uh, in the expat space. Um, and that might be a good place for, for listeners to also kind of dig in 
Um, I will put that too in the show notes of this episode. So Nomad Nation, we're going to mention a lot of good resources here <laughs> to help you get started with your research. So please make sure to go find them on tandemnomads.com slash 176. I will make sure to put them all there because I do think that it requires a little bit of focus and time to go yeah. through these resources. And then, like you said, Naomi, pick your lane. And um, I, I can confess here that it did take me like two weeks where I couldn't think of anything else. I actually had to pause the launch of the Tandem Nomads uh, flagship program that's called the Portable Business Accelerator because I just couldn't focus on it. Mm -hmm. um, it does take so much energy and time, uh, which we'll talk about that, like how to manage that energy. Uh, but I would really invite you if you are ready to take a stand to actually take that time to go through the resources out there. And I will add one more, Naomi, talking again about the kids because I do and the schools, because I do think that's a big problem, especially among the expat community. Uh, we have to name it. Racism is really, really existent in our community. And we tend to think that we are this beautiful um, this beautiful, tolerant community. It is not true. There is a system of caste among this community and we'll talk about it a little bit but just to not forget there's a resource i want to mention that for me is just amazing that's called the anti-racist baby from um ibrahim dr ibrahim kendi i did write i did read his book anti-racist which is amazing i did not read this book but i can trust it to be a really good it was just launched uh like a week ago or something like that so i highly recommend it to the parents who want to do that anti-racism work and include their kitchen table in yeah. the conversation and i love that term that you use the kitchen table Another book to add to the list for kids, uh, and, and we, I actually bought copies for our middle school library here and asked that the principal include it, um, is this book is Anti-Racist by Tiffany Jewell. And uh, it's beautifully graphically illustrated and is meant for, I would say, probably nine years old to maybe 16. It's for our um, older elementary age kids and young adults. And because it's so beautifully illustrated and clear, it's also really, really great for adults. Um, and it, it goes through just starting with definitions. What does racism mean? What is the definition? What's the definition of an ally? What's the definition of an antagonist? And it just goes through. And uh, I think that that's one thing, Amel, that um, I've been hearing about and I learned more and I really like is instead of using the word ally, use the word antagonist. Um, Catrice mm -hmm. Jackson is the one who really talks about that. And what that means is that you find the things, even if you're outside your passport country, that you can be an antagonist for on behalf of the people wow. who are suffering. So you may be an American citizen living in France and you can't do X, Y, and Z, but I guarantee you, you can look into your community and find someone who is suffering because of racism and do that work there. Um, I was having a conversation with, um, somebody about their friends and how they have a large number of black friends. And I said, yes. And would they, would that be the same if you were back in your home country? And there, you know, of course there's a long pause. Um, I also saw recently and I'm horrible at, at referencing and crediting, but someone said, maybe it was Desiree Attaway. Um, would they consider you a friend as well? Hmm. You may you may list your folks that you say are friends, but would they also consider you a friend? Wow. But that was rather yeah. 
And I think it's important to stop that hypocrisy of thinking that if we have black friends that we're not racist or at least doing the anti-racist work. If I want to leave anyone here, every, anyone I was listening is we need to shift doing the anti-racist and, and, but having black friends does not make you yeah. uh, not racist. That's for sure. One, one action step, you know, we were talking earlier about what is it that we can do. One action step that I would suggest that doesn't matter where you are. There's a Harvard um, implicit bias test that you can take. Oh, that's and interesting. They have, I think, 15 or 18 different topics. You can take it on um, skin tone and gender and all sorts of different things. And it's literally a, a test where you sit on your computer and your left hand has one set of controls and your right hand has another. And they show you images and you're supposed to respond with, is this bad or is this good? Is this scary or is this safe? And I will tell you, I took the test uh, as a part of my gun violence prevention work that I did a couple of years ago. I walked into that test and I thought, oh, I'm, I'm not biased. I have a black brother. My dad is black. I'm mixed race. I grew up, you know, in poverty. I, 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 I. And I had the results of that test come back and I'm extremely biased. I'm extremely biased towards young black men and a, a internal fear of them. And I was like, how is that possible? Um, but it is, it's within all of us. And I think it's good to have that, that, that implicit bias test helps, helps kind of level set where you are so that you're, as you're walking out in the world, you can be aware of it. Um, and that's the, a really good place to start also. So true. This is so true. Oh, I, I love this idea. I will take this test, the Harvard implicit bias. Is it correct? Right? Yep. Okay. I'll look for it and add it on the list of the resources. I love this conversation because we're giving as many tools as we can. And I would like to hop on the conversation as a leader once we are, do our own work, because I don't think we can become a leader as a community and a business owner and make the other people do the work if we don't do it ourselves. So mm -hmm. I'm glad that we took the time to discuss what can we do on a personal level in our kitchen table, but also within us to make that shift first. Yeah. And we've got some great resources here. The next step, um, I think it's, it's more like, okay, what do we do once we've done that work to involve others and make the change within our platforms and our communities. And so what are the tips that you're a consultant and expert at that? You're helping a lot of organizations do that. So I would love to hear what are your tips uh, to help leaders involve that community in change and impact? So um, I was talking with another um, podcast, podcast host about this, and we talked about tokenism. And I think it's so easy inside either communities or entrepreneur um, businesses to want to spend time bringing in experts or bringing in consultants or bringing in the people who um, know what they're talking about. And I guess I feel like I'm contradicting myself a little bit because prior I said, reach out to an expert to get your learning from. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that. But then when you talk about inside your business or inside your community space, um, it's very possible that you already have folks that can help you with your next steps. Um, so I'm thinking back to I Am A Triangle when we were on Facebook. And I realized very quickly through a matter of a, some certain, certain situations that I didn't have to do all of the work myself. I could call on others um, to help me with that. And I think the one thing that is super, super important is that you put the call out broadly uh, and then you don't have to worry about 
as much about tokenism. Um, if you go to one person and say, could you help me with this? And it so happens that you're black or brown um, in the work of anti-racism, that can feel to that person as though you're mm. selecting them just because. Um, if you put the call out and say, I know that there are some of you that could really help me speak to this or could help me develop new guidelines for the community or could help me find a, a copywriter who is black so that I can support a black business. Um, then you let the people who are in your space step up to that challenge. Um, and then that kind of helps with tokenism. I will say though, from my personal perspective, I welcome the opportunity to to walk alongside the messiness of tokenism because at least it means I've been asked in the room. Um, if I'm not in the room, I can't be of impact. And so I don't mind being the token person. I don't mean don't mind being asked to be the brown person to represent. Um, and I know that's not the case for everyone. Um, yeah, it's a huge mind. debate right now. This yeah. um, so tokenism, the, the fact of choosing a black person to help you do this work um, is a big debate, especially in the U.S. A lot of black people are saying, "Do your own work. I'm not yeah. going to be doing your work." Um, so, what do you think of that answer? Because you kind of took a stand here, but I wonder how you feel about that. Yeah, I think it's a valid stance to say do your own work because the large majority of white folks that I see talking to black folks are not doing the work. So the large percentage do need to hear that message. But there's a small percentage of people that that internalized message shows up as shame and then it halts everyone in their tracks. And so I think that we need to just be very careful that we are not mass marketing this message of white people need to go do their own work and stop calling on the black people and the brown people to do it for you because that perpetuates the divide. Mm -hmm. um, I love this. And, and that's not how we build community. So to bring it back to community, mm. um, I do think you need to be careful if you are a white business owner or if you have other privilege that puts you in a, a position of power, be careful. And for those people that are potentially feeling that you've been tokenized in the past, just reframe that a little bit and maybe see how it sits with you to think of it, not as tokenism, but as um, a door that you didn't have to push open quite so hard. You've been asked, you've been asked to be there. Uh, what can you do with it? I love that. And I hope you don't mind if I share this personal story of the exchange we had. Um, and if you do, I'll edit it. <laughs> but I know that you won't ask me. Anyhow, <laughs> I'll stop there. But I remember that I reached out to you. You were one of the first people I reached out after I was like I need to do something I couldn't sleep that night yeah. I was like I don't know I don't know what to do I feel helpless I feel like I cannot just move on with my life as it is anymore um, and I reached out to you and then after I reached out to you I, in the meantime I, there was this whole noise about tokenism and I was like oh, oh I never realized that you were you know mixed race or even black I don't even know I just for me, you've always been know me. And yeah. I realized that could be a problem. Uh, am I doing something wrong? And I asked you, I said, I'm so sorry if I'm reaching out to you and you feel targeted because of your race. So I don't know how, if, if you want to tell me more about how you felt when I said that. Yeah, it was, it was actually a really good conversation. And I had even deeper conversations with Mia, my 14 year old about it, uh, because she's experiencing the same things. Uh, so my, my perspective is that my father is black, and my mom is white. 
Um, and I present, uh, since you are listening to this and not seeing me, I present uh, as white passing. So um, for the most part, I have grown up in my life with people not knowing what I am. And it gives a little bit of a twist to that where are you from question mm -hmm. that we all get as expats. Um, because people don't know where to place me. They don't know what I am. And I have long lived in the space of not being black enough for black friends as I was growing up and not being white enough for white friends. And so there was this middle space that I inhabited. And um, how I felt as people have reached out to me to ask um, for help or for advice or for wisdom has been to first preface it with, um, with that, that my black experience is oh, I don't want to say the word diluted. Um, it is mixed with a lot of white privilege. And so I don't know what it's like to grow up and to live in this world black. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, being asked to share my advice, honestly, feels similar to being asked to share advice on how to build a community. It's, it's from my lived experience that someone's asking me and that you are asking me to share. Um, I also know that it is extremely harmful for some folks to be asked um, to participate and to share. And so I want to acknowledge that. But for me, you asking me was, um, was just fine. And I think one of the things that you and I talked about after you shared your concern about that worry was that it also matters where the person's coming from doing the asking. Um, and I felt very confident in our relationship because of your own lived experience um, through trauma and um, etherism and flight and all of the things that you've experienced in your family. And so you asking me the questions came with that knowledge and that lens. Mm -hmm. um, I had gotten some messages from people who brought their privilege with the question and I didn't react the same way. Um, and so I think that maybe that's, maybe that's a message in just the language and the way that we communicate with each other. Um, it's perfectly okay. I think to say, I'm going to F this up and then this is going to be really messy, but I feel like I need to ask you and then hold space for the other person to say, no, thank you. Um, I don't want to have this dialogue. Um, but again, if we, if we're not comfortable to ask questions, how are we going to get anywhere? Exactly, which is a perfect segue with the word comfortable. The biggest learning lesson that I'm still experimenting with and I'm comfortable with is accepting to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I like to be in control. I like to, this episode is feeling very uncomfortable because it's not structured. It's not, it's going all over the place, but it was important for me to do it. But the biggest uncomfortable thing as a leader of a community is first of all, to not necessarily know what to lead the community to do or to say, hopefully, um, hopefully episodes like these, and I will do more of these for sure. I committed to bring the topic of racism more often through my platform. Uh, but I realized I, that I started to have to say things that were uncomfortable and getting comfortable with getting with being uncomfortable yeah. is a huge step. I don't know if you see what I mean by that. Yeah. Um, so what has happened, and I did not expect to that, was to have backlash very quickly for speaking up. And I was wondering, for those who worry, first of all, of getting a backlash, what would you, would you have to tell them? 
And those who do have a backlash, if you have any suggestions for those who lead a community, how to deal with it. So I will say that um, I believe that community is community and it doesn't matter what shape it takes. However, there are huge differences between in-person community and online community. Um, And so I'll speak in response to it from an online community standpoint, um, especially in the middle of pandemic and such. But um, online community allows keyboard warriors to come out in full force And I think that it's wise if you have a community to revisit your guidelines as far as what's allowed and what's not allowed. Um, I think that it's important to bring in other people to help you with that work of rewriting guidelines. Uh, If you are a, let's use Facebook as an example, if you're a community, uh, a group leader on Facebook, you can be a founder of a group or a group admin, or you can be the leader of a community. And there's two very vast differences. If you're the latter, if you view yourself as the leader of the community, it's, I think, imperative that you bring other people into the conversation when you do things like rewriting community guidelines um, so that you have a lens from all aspects, whether it be disability access or anti-racism or um, all of the things. (laughs) Um, And then it's also super important that you, and I learned this with I Am A Triangle, that you have people that can help you with the backlash and the defense of the community guidelines. And I think it's important to also feel, um, this is gonna be messy, Amel, but um, personal responsibility for the stand that you're taking and also a bigger responsibility that's not about you at all, that is about the community. And so if you enact other people to help you with the backlash or other people to help you with enforcing community guidelines, it becomes for the good of the community and not just about you and your Mm -hmm. stance. I I feel also very strongly that, uh, especially right now, I am am primarily off of Facebook and I have been for many years, but because of my political run, I'm I'm kind of being pulled back in and I'm seeing the divisive, it's so horrible how people are treating each other. And then group admins turn off comments as as a reflex of, ah, that's uncomfortable. I don't wanna wanna have this, this happen. Uh, I also see a lot of comments like, I have my own life to live. I'm just running this group on the side. I I can't sit in here all day and and manage comments. Um, I have a whole lot to say. That might be a whole different, um, it's not really for this conversation, but I think it's important that you bring other people along with you um, that believe in you and in the community to help with that. Yeah. And any tips to do that? Because it's not always easy to know how to draw in people into taking action with you and taking a stand mm-hmm. with you. Well, and I think, I think that we all can use guidance on how to use our words. And it goes back to, you know, like kindergarten, um, use your words, Johnny, <laughs> uh, you know, instead of getting upset and throwing things, we, we're told as we're growing up to use our words. And I think that it can, you can model the behavior that you want to see in your community by using your words. And even if that means using your words to say that violates our community guidelines and you're not welcome in the space, block at abandon. Like I would rather, honestly, and this is not a popular opinion, but I'd rather see someone who has violated community guidelines that are clear guidelines be blocked and removed from a community than silenced and stayed in the community. Um, Because if you think of how that feels to be silenced and then how everyone else watches the silencing, um, that's its own form of white supremacy and white privilege. Exactly. 
So Naomi, you've been referring, let me just summarize, I think the key takeaway for me here as a leader who has a community, the first work, as we said, is to individually do the work. And then you said getting help to define those guidelines. I did not think about that. Like, uh, like defining rules and a mission statement as a community, what we stand for and whoever comes in needs to agree on these. Yeah. And I find that's a great tip so that, and second, whoever comes in not only agrees to it, but is responsible yeah. to keeping everybody else as yes. well um, uh, responsible to following yeah. the guidelines. So it's not just the leader's job to keep the guidelines and the, the values alive in yeah. the community, but also every single person's job. Yeah. And if, and if you think about it in a family dynamic, a, a typical nuclear, traditional, so to speak, family where you have a mother, another parent, and children who are being raised up in, in, the, in the household, it's just as much the children's responsibility to follow the rules as it is the adults in the house to decide what those are. And it's no different than inside of community. And I think the other piece that's really important to say also is um, I've been developing this concept and context that I kind of operate by in everything that I do, that there's riverbanks. And the riverbanks have to be shored up so that you don't have a, a flood. But inside the riverbanks, it's it's fluid. It changes and it, it, it does its own thing. And that's how a community operates. It mm. will do its own things, but you have to have riverbanks. Otherwise, the flood can happen. You can start to have it seep over the edge. Um, and when you ask others for their input uh, in developing those riverbanks, it also has a um, flexing of the muscles, so to speak, so that it's not just you having to stand on your own. Um, so yeah, good summary of a lot of different <laughs> concepts. Yeah, no, I think that's important. And you've been referring uh, to something uh, that I, I know, I think I know what you were talking about, and maybe we should mention it, because I think real life examples and stories can help as well embrace what we're talking about. Um, you were referring about shutting off comments when the conversations don't happen. So the weekend, uh, I think it was the weekend of the 26th of May or something like that. Uh, Marie Folio, which is a big, mm. a big leader in the term. And I've always been a big fan of Marie Folio, yeah. who's the B school um, leader. And she has uh, helped women around the world build their yeah. businesses online uh, inside her community that counts dozens of thousands of people um she the racism topic came up there was a fight in the comments around this topic and instead of dealing with it she just shut off the comments yep. and that had backlashed in such a her business was at stake in a way yep. so um she had to come back and, and apologize and actually do the work um to repent herself in a way and it, it's not something that's going to be fixed in just a few days yeah. um so i think that's important to share that that when we talk about backlash it could be both ways uh people who are like racist as much as yeah. people who are trying to make you listen um so that's important to be very wise on how we're managing these conversations mm -hmm. but shutting off is not the solution yeah. Well, and I think, I think people listening may say, well, then what's the answer then? And I, so I want to leave something practical. Mm -hmm. um, in our I Am a Triangle group, we had a couple of moments. One was a travel ban shortly after Trump was elected that just set our group into um, a flurry of problematic things. Mm -hmm. And when hurt people are even further damaged, um, it just creates a really, really difficult and challenging situation. 
And what I chose to do on several occasions was open up opportunities for people to talk together in a group. Um, so it was, it was before Zoom was popular, but we had Skype sessions where I would invite people to say, we're not going to have this conversation here any longer because it's too easy when we can't see each other's faces to say things that I don't think that you mean. Let's, let's get on a call in an hour. And almost always the people that were being uh, inappropriate and racist and xenophobic and all of the things didn't show up and they, they quieted themselves down. Instead of me having to silence them, they were called out in a way that said, show your face. And so mm. I think in online communities, that's, that's a really good, it's, it's a bold move. I mean, it, it takes some guts to, to step into your community and say, no, we are not going to have that with only your fingers on your keyboard. We will have it face to face and let's talk through this. But that's a very practical way. And I honestly think if Marie Forleo, I watched all that happen. I watched Rachel Rogers very gracefully step up and uh, talk to Marie. Um, if Marie had just said, let's all jump on a Zoom. I don't know what I'm doing, but I want to hear from you. I think that could have done, got a long ways. I, I do want to recommend to follow Rachel Rogers because she did this amazing uh, town hall and I will put the link as well in the show notes of this episode to answer this question, how do you as an entrepreneur show up for the work anti-racism? And she came up with this pledge that I'm trying to follow. It's yeah. not easy, but at least it gives a guidance of how do you live, uh, how do you live your entrepreneurial journey with taking a stand? And it basically just small things that you can do on the daily on the daily base yep. and on the background of your business. It doesn't have to be, this is what I learned, it doesn't have to be something in the face of people it doesn't have to be noisy just for example choosing being intentional about hiring vas from different backgrounds uh, yeah. from um, colored people making sure i know that i've no, i've not made it a proactive choice to have black people on the show i did have it black like but i know that i will be intentional now not just because they're black but for their experience and for their expertise and that's also something we have to be careful um to not do that tokenism again like that you mentioned um but there's a series of tips that she shared uh she's done an amazing job at that so i will be reach sharing those in the yeah. show notes of the episode i think um, the other thing i would say ml to the entrepreneurs who are listening or the people who want to get into business another very easy action tip is to just be aware of the spaces that you're in and be aware of who else is there with you so especially in the, the land of everything being on zoom the next time you're on a zoom meeting with someone or you're participating in a conference who who's being asked to be there and what what do all those little squares look like and, and do the squares represent what you would want your diverse um, and anti-racist work to look like? And if not, be willing to call out that conference or not participate. That's even, um, I think, enough of an action step is to, to withdraw yourself from the space. You don't always have to go yelling and hollering and saying, you need to fix this and you need to do this. Sometimes it's just being one less person on that RSVP invite list. Um, that can also make a difference too. Yeah, this is huge. I want to. I still want to address this because I've seen my husband, for example, putting it since years now. It's not new, putting a big effort in having women and people of color on his platforms. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember telling me how he struggled to find them in yeah. a way. So that's another thing. Why is it so difficult? It's not like there's less people of color and women who are professional um, and capable. So what is is it that we don't are 
Is it that we're not doing enough work to be exposed to these people? I I can only I have so many things to say, and most of them would not be appropriate for me to to be able to replay. What I will say is I'll connect it to an analogy. Here in Omaha, Nebraska, we have a very very large philanthropic community. We have very very wealthy people who are very very generous with their money, and they are all white. And the majority of people who work for them are all white. Only recently did one of our family foundations hire a black man who also happens to be gay to run programs for her. Um, And I think that that is the case with experts and the people that show up over and over in conference spaces and on stages. Um, There are black people that are wealthy in Omaha and they choose to divest of their funds and be helpful in ways that aren't performative and that aren't uh, so public. And so I think it's the same. If you've got black and brown or women or disabled folks, um, they're doing their work on a more grassroots community direct aid level. And so you're not going to find them because they're doing their work quietly. And so I think it takes asking the question. So asking, um, you know, for me, I, I'm very enmeshed right now in the disability justice space because of recovery from an accident. And so I know two or three people here locally that also are enmeshed in that. And so I asked them, I'm going to be adding people to my political campaign team, and I want them to represent the disability community. Can you give me a list of people? Sure enough, a, a three-page list. Um, when I was looking for someone to potentially hire for a nonprofit job a couple of years ago, I reached out to that black man who was, you know, working for the philanthropic family and said, I need someone who fits this description. And I'd really love if they were black or brown. Sure enough, got a list. So I think we need to kind of go, you know, a little deeper to ask the people who they know, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Um, But if you're just looking across the social media uh, surface, I don't think you'll find the people that you want because they're underneath it doing the the hard work and not talking about it. So do you find it's okay to actually say, I am looking for black people? Do you- I think it's okay. It goes back to that. How are you asking for it and for why? I think it's when you put a broad statement out that says, I need someone who has lived experience, who knows what it's like, for example, to grow up in a specific community. And I would like for them to be able to resonate and be relevant to the community that we're serving. I think that you can say that without saying I'm looking for a black dude. Mm-hmm. Um, or in the disabled space, someone who has experienced the um, etherism and the invisibility of having lived through something that put them at a disadvantage. I can say that without saying someone who is in a wheelchair. Um, And it goes back to, and this, you know, entrepreneurs might not be hiring a massive staff or have an HR team, but it goes back to our HR hiring policies and how we communicate what it is that we're hoping to get um, and just being creative with going again, using our words. yeah, that's so, so good. That's that's so good. We could continue this conversation forever. I, I, I think there's so much work to do. And this is why, I, as I said, I, my commitment is to bring up this topic as often as possible on the show. Yeah. Um, because I do think that when we stand, we are better entrepreneurs. And I don't think that there's a discord between talking about building businesses and taking a stand right. in the society. I hope that everything you shared here will help people um, and Nomad Nation, I'm addressing you now, take a stand against racism. Um, it is a favor that I'm asking you to um, 
if you have not yet considered doing the work or plunging into this world to understand what's happening, why it's important to check the resources we're going to put in the show notes and take the time to to listen to other people's stories, uh, real life stories of what's happening. Ask people around you um, to listen, uh, to, to share their stories with you. I think stories are what also help understand why we all need to take action on this. But these tips, I think, work for any battle or cause we believe in. And you mentioned, for example, disability, uh, you know, and there's so many topics to, to address. So I hope that these tips were really helpful. But what is it that you want to leave us with today? I think the one thing that I would say is it, it goes exactly to what you just said. If there, if there's something that you believe passionately in or that you desperately want to see changed, there is an underlying racism thread that runs through that. So whether that's food insecurity or uh, the caste system and classism in the place that you're living or sustainable clothing or gardening and creating butterfly habitats. I mean, you can go all, and I, I said this recently, I would challenge the tam, Tandem Nomad Nation that if you feel that you don't have something that you're passionate about, that you could draw lines to being anti-racist, reach out to me and we can, we can brainstorm. Um, I love it. Every one of us has something that we can do um, every day that helps make small changes. Um, and it, again, starts at your kitchen table. Exactly. I love that message. It starts at your kitchen table. That's lovely. Thank you so much, Nami, for taking the time. Um, it's, it's been so lovely to have you and I'm so lucky to know you, to be able to refer to you and reach out to you. Uh, so thank you for this episode and thank you for the time you took to share your guidance with me. You are very welcome. And thanks for being willing to have these conversations and to take a bold stand, um, not only for you and your business, but also uh, for those that are in your community space, uh, because the ripple effect um, has a big has a big impact. I definitely hope so. Um, so, what is it that where is it that we can find you, Naomi? Let us know. Where do you want us to go check you out? So, uh, yeah, the I my website is naomihadaway.com. Uh, my Instagram handle is also at Naomi Hathaway. And from both of those two spots, you can kind of find my, my ripple and my, um, my spider web of all the different things that I'm doing. Um, and then soon we'll be all filled with political campaign stuff. So Wow, it's going to be amazing. I'm so grateful and happy to know you. You're doing such an amazing work and impact in so many different levels. So thanks again. And Nomad Nation, I hope that this episode, although very unusual, uh, will help you in your process as well of reflecting of how you want to show up as a person and as an entrepreneur and as a leader. I truly believe that it is about making an impact, no matter how we decide to uh, to illustrate it. But um, taking a stand is really important, especially with this topic. So thank you so much for listening and stay tuned to turn your challenges into great opportunities to make an impact.